Well, Happy New Year. It is a new year, and I know a lot of us have been waiting for that. Uh, but one of the things about New Year's is that oftentimes, even if our only real hope is that this year is better than last year, oftentimes we we bring uh, with us into the new year some hopes for the new year, some specific hopes about ourselves, and so we make New Year's resolutions. According to surveys, about uh, 75%, about three people out of four, do make uh, New Year's resolutions uh, for for a particular new year. Um, I don't know what the numbers will be this year, but uh, but we do make these resolutions. And uh, actually, the younger you are, the more likely you are to make uh, resolutions. Uh, people in the Gen Z re- uh, uh, generation, almost 90% of Gen Z people uh, have, have reported that they want to make resolutions. Uh, um, resolutions that that drops off over time. It's it's about two thirds of the boomers make them, and I, I've wondered uh, if the reason for that drop off is because as we age, we get tired of having failures. We we get tired of having our noses rubbed in the fact that we're not very good at this, and that that's typical because about uh, only about one in eight New Year's resolutions actually produces the desired change that the person had for it. That that people do them and then they they fail to achieve that that effect that they had hoped for. And maybe as we get older, we get tired of having our failures uh, um, accumulate. So we just give up on that. But but most people don't. And even even in the older generations, two out of three still try to do, um, still try to do uh, resolutions. And the reason for that is there's things about our lives we want to change that we actually hope that somehow maybe this will be the year when we actually deal with that particular problem. And so uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about uh, making changes in our lives, making lasting, permanent changes in our lives, um, and we're going to we're going to talk about it from a perspective of faith, because change is hard. And the question that comes up immediately for people of faith is, "Will God help me? Can I get any help? Does does it make a difference in in my ability to have changes in my life?" If I am a person of faith, so that's that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, last week we we talked about how um, uh, God uh, sent Jesus. the The reason for the Christmas season is God sent Jesus to redeem us from the law, so that we could be adopted as His children, and as His children we could be heirs. So that sounds promising. Maybe there is something that God can do for us. On the other hand, we know as parents, those of us who are parents, we know that you can't really change people, that that change has to come from within, that I can't change you as my child. So um, uh, I may love you as, as my child, but I can't necessarily make anything change. There are loving parents whose children still struggle with addictions. There are loving parents whose children's marriages fail, that there are all kinds of ways that parents would wish change for their children, but while, while we can support our children, we can't necessarily make them change. And uh, so that that's true of human parents. But what about God? Can God effect change in people? Well, what we're going to see as we look through the the, the reading today is that God can, uh, at least for the the the, the category of of change that we're talking about today, uh, God can and does make changes in people. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Now, the category is called sin, and the problem with sin is that it is a loaded word. It has a lot of connotations and people get uncomfortable when we talk about sin. So I need to remind you that we're coming at this from the perspective that that because of what uh, God has done in Christ, 
we have been adopted as God's children, that this is not something we have to do in order to get God to love us. Rather, God loves us, and because of that, he sent Jesus to redeem us from the law so we could become his children. So we have to, we have to start with any, any discussion of sin has to start from that place, that we are God's beloved children. The other thing we have to, we have to, uh, uh, understand when we're talking about sin is that not all sin represents a moral failure that maybe sometimes we just want to change something in our life. Um, but, uh, it may sound like, well, what does that have to do with sin? But sin is, is a term from archery. The, the word that we use for sin is actually a term from archery. It means to miss the bullseye, to aim at the target and not hit it. And so really anything we do that is, that is falling short of the target is a sin from the perspective of faith. And the target, again, from the perspective of faith, is to be like Christ, that God wants us to be his children so that he can make us like his son Jesus. That's, that's the goal. And so anytime we are, we are falling short of that goal, that is sin, although it may not be re- the result of some moral failure on our part. So, so with that background, with the idea that sin is not simply, um, uh, a moral failure, that we, we, we can talk about how God can work in us to, to, uh, address the problem of sin. So, um, we are going to look at a passage today from Paul's letter to, uh, to a first century Christian community in Rome. So it's called the, the letter of Paul to the, uh, Romans. And we're, we're going to look at chapter six. Now, if we, if we, uh, look at the entire letter, it's, it's Paul's longest letter. And, uh, there's, uh, 16 chapters. And the first eight all deal with the, the relationship between people and sin. So that's, that's the broad topic we're looking at. And the section we're looking at, uh, talks specifically about what God can do about sin in our lives. So that's the place we're going to look at. But even this is too long for us to look at in one, in one discussion. So we're only going to look at the first, the first of three different illustrations that Paul uses. And the reason for that is they, they require a lot of unpacking. Paul, um, the, the idea that Paul is, is using here is, is not actually, um, a difficult idea to understand, but Paul writes very densely and he, he makes some sharp turns as, along the way. And so tracking with him can be difficult. It's easy to, to, have to say, wait a minute, I need to go back and read that sentence again. So we're going to take our time and look at this one, this one, um, illustration. Now he has three illustrations, so, so none of them are exact, uh, uh, exact, correspond exactly to what God can do. And the reason for that is that God, uh, works in us in a way that doesn't correspond to anything that is part of the created order, that, that God is, is spirit and, and, uh, God is working in us in a way that we can't, you know, compare to the ordinary things of life. But Paul takes these things of life, these ordinary things, and says, okay, well, this one is right here, and it, and, and it's a true statement about what God is doing. And then there's another illustration over here, and another one over there. And if we triangulate between them, then we can actually understand what it is that God is doing with respect to sin. So we're going to look at one of them, and I encourage you, if you if you get interested in this, to look at the next two. So um, if you read chap- the rest of chapter 6 and chapter 7, then you can give yourself a treat um, and uh, read chapter 8 as a reward for yourself. But but we're going to just look at uh, part of chapter 6. So with, with all that intro, let's go ahead now and... Uh, a read from chapter uh, 6 of Paul's letter to the Romans. So he begins by saying, So what are we going to say? Should we continue sinning so grace will multiply? 
He's saying, since God already loves us, should we just go on being who we are? Is, is that God's intention, that we just kind of keep doing what we're doing because God loves us, and this way God will have opportunities to love us more? Is, 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 that, is that what he's uh, suggesting? And, and, and b- before we read Paul's answer, uh, we might say, well, in that case, I'm not interested because the whole point is I want some change in my life. There's something I want to change. That's why we're talking about New Year's resolutions. So he's saying, is, 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 does our faith just tell us, well, too bad, uh, God has nothing to offer you, and in fact, maybe God doesn't even want you to change? Is that what he's saying? And the answer in, cha- in verse 2 is, absolutely not. He says, all of us died to sin. How can we still live in it? So what, what does he mean by that? He's, he's going to, he's going to explain that in a minute. Um, but he's saying that if we are, if, if we have died to sin, then obviously we can't go on sinning. So, uh, the nature of our faith is that, is that we, we can't keep doing something once we've died. Uh, so he's going to explain that to us now. He says, or don't you know, in other words, this is something that Christians would have been taught in the first century. Um, I don't understand exactly everything about their evangelistic strategies back in those days. Um, today, uh, you know, we have a different society and people get instructed in, in the basics of Christianity in different ways. So this may not be um, uh, something that you were instructed in as a Christian, but Paul is saying to the church in Rome that they should have been instructed. They should have been instructed in what? That all who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. So he's saying that we are baptized into his death. And this ties in with what he said in verse 2, that we have died um, to sin. So what does he mean by that? Well, unfortunately, it's kind of confusing for us because of the word baptism. For us, the word the word baptize or baptism is a technical word. It's used about things that happen in churches. It's, it's something that a particular ceremony or a particular sacrament that happens in a church. And it's often understood to be a, a, a symbolic washing that, that we, we come into the water as, as sinful people and we come up being washed clean of our sin. And that's, that's a, a true statement about the kind of baptism that we, we, use in in church discussions when we talk about the sacrament of baptism but Paul is talking about something else that's different he's talking about the the word baptism in its ordinary everyday uh, usage and that's something that we miss because we don't use the word baptism anymore but Paul is using a word that they would have they would have been very familiar with in their culture because it was just the word to to dunk something if you've got um, a donut and you want to Put it in your coffee. You would baptize your donut in your coffee. That's that's the, what the word meant. It meant to dunk something. And um, there's this all kind. Of, you know, so obviously you can understand how how to to have the the Christian understanding of baptism. The idea of baptism uh, with water. Uh, Paul's saying that that that's something that uh, would be a, an example of a dunking, or at least a symbolic dunking. But but he's saying not in water. What 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 are we baptized in? He says, don't you know that all who are baptized into Christ Jesus? He says, all who were dunked into Christ Jesus. He says that that we are we are actually uh, uh, um, put into Christ Jesus so that uh, Christ Jesus can can uh, surround us and 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 uh, um, infuse us with. His own attributes, and the the idea here comes from uh, uh, the the industry of dyeing cloth. 
Now, for us today, we've got a different sort of economy, and for us, cloth usually comes pre-dyed. That that it's done in some factory somewhere, and we know it. We know it happens, but we don't really know much about it. It's not something we see on an everyday basis. But it was something that that occurred in the first century. People uh, had a readier access to the people who dyed their cloth. Um, in fact, in the book of the the Acts of the Apostles, we read about a woman named Lydia who was actually a, a merchant who dealt in purple dye, or it's not clear from the text, either purple dye or, or cloth that had been dyed purple. So it was something that was much more a part of the everyday world. People understood the idea that you dunked, you dunked something in, in a dye in order to change it. Uh, and again, we don't do that much, although there is, there is one exception that I'm aware of. There, there may be others, but I'm aware of one, and it is tie-dyeing. It is, it is this idea of, of taking cloth and then putting dyes on it to make interesting patterns. And uh, I don't know what your experience is with tie-dyeing, but uh, my children were homeschooled. And for whatever reason, I don't know historically where this comes from, but uh, homeschoolers are, are very much... Uh, um, uh, associated with, with tie-dyed clothes. And, and again, I don't know where that comes from, but, uh, back when my, my kids were young, they would, they would go to different events with other homeschoolers and they would wear their, um, tie-dyed clothes. And they, the place they got them was that Margot would make tie-dyed clothes. And so she would, she would actually do the process of putting the dye into the fabric. And, uh, th- then the, the, the pigments, in the dye would attach themselves to the cloth and they would become a part of it. That is the image that Paul is talking about here. He's saying that Christ gets into us because we're dunked into Christ. So he says, he says, don't you know that all who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He, the, the idea is that Christ died and now his, his death is infused into us, that, that it soaks through us, and it becomes a part of us, um, just as it is a part of him. So his death um, is is in us. He says, therefore, we were buried together with him through baptism into his death. That just as you know, Christ was crucified and he was buried, in the same way, his death and his burial are suffused into us. Um, so that, so that what? So that just as Christ was raised from the dead... So he's talking now about Christ has died, but he says Christ is also raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead uh, through the glory of the Father. And we might expect at this point he would say, so that we too have been raised. But he doesn't. He says, so that we can walk in newness of life. So that we can, we can go forward with uh, newness of life. So how, did, how does that work? Well, he's going to, he's going to answer it, but first he's going to repeat himself, and this time he's going to use a different, a slightly different metaphor. It's still the big, the, the idea is basically the same, but it's slightly different. He says, if we were united together in a death like his, and this time he doesn't use the word for dunking something, he uses the word, the, the word united here means to be entangled with or intertwined with. It's a word you would find in gardening. Uh, the roots of something got all in, entangled, or maybe the trunks of a young tree might, might become, um, uh, entangled with each other. So now he's saying, um, in the same way that, that earlier, his, his earlier idea was that, that Christ is, is infused into us. Now he's saying we are tangled up with Christ, that, that we're tangled up with his death. In verse five, we're, ta- if, if we're united in a death like his, if we're tangled up in a death like his, 
we will also be united in a resurrection like his. We were, we have been. This is something that has already happened. We have been united in a death like his. So that's something that's already happened. And then he says, we will also be united in a resurrection like his. So we have been, we we have died, and we will be raised. But we're not raised yet. He says Christ is raised, but that hasn't happened to us yet. Right now, we have the the death of Christ in us. We're, We're tangled up with the death of Christ, but we're not we're not raised yet. So what what are we? He says, this is what we know. The person that we used to be was crucified with him. Why, why are we already dead in Christ? He says, because, because, um, that person, our, our physical body, but also our personality, who we really are, that person was crucified with him in order to get rid of the corpse that had been controlled by sin. Now, this is a very arresting language. It's, it's strong language Paul is using to talk about us as, as dead. But the idea here is that compared to what we will be when we're raised, we really are dead. That the scripture talks about how we are spiritually dead. Um, and, uh, he, he's saying that compared to that, we are, we are, um, not yet alive. We, we are dead, uh, because we're dead in our sin. But, but here he's saying that, it, that Christ is physically, Christ was physically dead. He was, he was crucified. He died and he was buried. So he, his, his, his person, that, that person became a corpse. And we are united with that. And the reason for that is because that disconnects us from sin. Sin no longer has a power has any power over a dead body. And this is one of those places we have to follow what, what Paul's saying because he's talking about spiritual death, but he's also talking about bodily death. Here he's saying sin, sin, uh, doesn't care if we're spiritually dead, but it matters if we're physically dead. Sin can't do anything to people who are, who are spiritually dead. I mean, to, to, to sin works on people who are spiritually dead, but not physically dead. And he's saying here, that Christ is physically, bodily dead, and that's why sin has no power over him. So let's read on. He says, to get rid of the corpse, to get rid of the, the, the dead body that sin can no longer control. This way, that way, we wouldn't be slaves to sin anymore because a person who has died has been freed from sin's power. Sin can only deal with somebody through a physical, uh, up until their physical death. And because Christ has died, sin cannot deal with Christ. And because we are united with Christ, we are tangled up with Christ, we're, we're, we're suffused with, with Christ, sin cannot get to us. Can, sin cannot control us. But he says we were slaves to sin. And maybe you say, well, look, uh, I, I don't know about slaves to sin. We're talking about New Year's resolutions, and then suddenly we're talking about being slaves to sin. Where, where is this headed? The, the the idea is that is that sin messes with us and, and maybe it causes moral failures. Maybe sin is we, we can point to something that the the New Year's resolution we're talking about is a is a great moral failure and it's obviously some kind of sin. But but the idea is that is that sin is insidious in us and and it, even the things we do that are good sin taints sin kind of puts a sour taste to them. So imagine if you've done something that is that is good. 
that, that you have, you volunteered at the homeless shelter or, or you went to the park strip and you participated in a demonstration for some important political cause. Th- those are good things. But, but sin gets in there and, 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 and sours them. Uh, and how, did, how does it, how does sin do that? Well, an example would be if you did one of those things and then you posted it on, on Instagram so people could see what a good person you are. That, that suddenly you take something that is good and you make it all about you. That's, that's an example of how sin works in us, how sin, how sin, um, controls us. It takes even the good things we do and gives them this kind of sour, sour taste. So he's saying that, uh, that that is the, the kind of connection that sin has even over our best, uh, our best, uh, um, achievements. And again, there's also the things we're not proud of, the things we would not post on, on Instagram. Sin is involved in those too. So, so he says, all of those sin cannot control us anymore if we are dead. And someday our bodies will die. But what Paul is saying is because we are in Christ, because we're dunked in Christ, we're tangled up in Christ, we can have that now. So verse eight, he says, if we died with Christ, we have faith, we will also live with him. So, so there is a, there is a point in the future when we will be resurrected. We will be raised with him. But in the meantime, he says, um, we know that Christ has been raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has power over him. He died to sin once and for all with his death, but he lives for God with his life. He says that, that we have, we, we have the, the, the life uh, the, uh, the resurrected life to look forward to. And in the meantime, we have access to Christ's life, not just his death. We have access to his life that, that his death, um, has soaked into us so that sin loses its control, but also his life, the, the good that is in him is soaking through us. So he has died to sin once and for all with his death, but he lives for God with his life. So saying that that's what the, the result of being tangled up or being soaked in Christ is. And he says in verse 11, in the same way, you also should consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive for God in Christ Jesus. And this is, this is actually an instruction. It's the first instruction Paul gives to his readers. Uh, that he says, he says, this is something you should do. Now, it may sound like he's saying, you know, just psych yourself out or just try harder or, or feel guilty if you, if you don't do this. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying this is actually a reality. This is, this is bedrock reality that, that we are dead in Christ and we have Christ's life in us. And so when we, when we feel the, the, the temptation to, to do something that we know Christ would not do, we, we can simply remind ourselves, we, we should consider ourselves that, that we are dead to sin and we have Christ's, uh, life in us so that we can be alive for God. So that's what he's saying. And it's not simply, you know, a head game. It's not something where you're trying to use positive thinking or something. He's saying this is reality. He's saying this is something we can actually test out. And in fact, he doesn't simply say, uh, give it a test. He says, do this. He, he, he says, consider yourself. This is a, a, an instruction from Paul. And like I said, it's the first instruction in the whole letter to the Romans. The first thing he says is, is not try harder, not feel guilty, but consider this. 
the, the word consider is from is from accounting, and it means to do the math. It means to to add up the numbers. You know, crunch crunch some some data and see what see what makes sense. He's saying, look at this. If we have hope for uh, a future resurrection, then shouldn't we also have hope that that we are united with Christ in His death? That 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 that. that that it's not just the one thing that we have to look forward to. It's not just someday in the sweet by and by we will we will be united with Christ in the resurrection. But right now, already, we are united with Christ in his death, and so sin no longer has power over us. And so he says, all we need to do is consider it. When we feel the, the tug of a temptation, when we say, I, I really would like to do this thing differently, but yet at the same time, I find myself drawn to do something that's that's not that, he says, consider, consider that you are dead to sin. Now, he's going to go on and explain that this doesn't mean we will never sin. He's, he's, he's going to go on in, in chapter 6 and 7. He's going to say, this doesn't mean sin. But Paul really isn't all that concerned about that. Um, you, can, you can read the, the, those chapters if you want. But briefly what he's saying is that that's bits of the old self that cling to us. And again, that's not a very pleasant image. But, but maybe a better way of thinking about it would be... Um, when I was when I was small, uh, it was back in the olden days before we knew about skin cancer and how we've got to put sunscreen on and uh, you know SPF 50 and things like that. Back in the olden days, kids would get out of school and then we'd spend the whole summer in the sun and we would get sunburn and and we'd blister. And then as the new skin came in underneath, we would peel off the little bits of dead skin. That's what Paul is saying. There's still little bits of dead skin on us, the little bits of the old self that cling to us. But Paul isn't really concerned about that. He says, that's that's really nothing to be concerned about if you're doing what I said, if you are considering the reality that Christ is is giving us his life now. We don't have to wait until we die, that we already have a share. We already have the ability to participate in Christ's death to sin and his life for God. And so when when we feel the temptation, when we think that that you know I'm going to be overcome by this, we should remember, we should consider that it's not me who's being who's being tugged on here, it's Christ. And Good luck with that. Christ is Christ is more powerful than sin, so we can we can we can have uh, calm whether a particular act is is successful or a failure, but only if we actually consider that Christ is alive in us. His life is in us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is hard for us to. To get our heads wrapped around, we 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 can say, okay, well, someday we will be raised and we'll be glorious and we'll be like Christ and we won't ever be tempted to sin again. But it's hard for us to believe that that this is something that is already available to us that we don't have to wait until we die because we can share in Christ's death. That that sin loses control over us because we share in Christ's death. Lord, help us to trust that. And when we feel temptation, help us to, to remember and to consider, um, that Christ, uh, has already made his life available to us so that we can live for you, so that we can put the ways of sin and, um, error and, and moral failure behind us. We pray this in his name. Amen.